Good morning. My name is Craig Nelson, a member here at East Shore. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm pleased to welcome you all here today, both in the sanctuary and on Zoom. We have an interesting worship service planned with John Schmey and Barb Claggett providing the music. Uh, thank you both. Earl Canfield, our speaker this morning, uh, was a physician's assistant when he started traveling to work in medical clinics in Nepal. In 1997, he was there with Mary Jane Schmidt, his life partner, who has since passed, and started discussing the idea that education may be needed even more than doctors and medicine in Nepal. During that trip, they noticed a young girl on the streets of Kathmandu who was sitting on the front steps of a shop selling cigarettes from a woven mat. When business was slow, she would place a notebook on her lap and write. They learned that the little girl named Uma was in the third grade and was a good student, but she had no father, and the cigarette shop, such as it was, was the main source of income for her and her mother. Earl and Mary Jane spent more time getting to know Uma, and before returning to the States, they decided they would fund Uma's education at a private school where Mary Jane was volunteering. By the time Uma was in the fifth grade, she was speaking fluent English, she was number one in her class, and she was dreaming of being a doctor. In 2001, Earl officially formed ANSWER, which stands for American Nepali Student and Women's Educational Relief, modeled on the success of educating UMA, and began asking fellow Unitarians at Fountain Street Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, if they would sponsor the education of other bright and disadvantaged Nepali students. UMA went on to be a registered nurse, and her success in school and now in life is just the first of many many success stories that answer is part of. We're pleased to welcome Earl into the pul pulpit this morning. Since Earl's going to talk about what real help is, I was reminded of our own history at East Shore and an example of what real help is not. You see, about 30 years ago, we formed a partner church relationship with a Unitarian church in Churrasco, St. George in Romania. At the time, Romania was just emerging as a democracy after many years of being dominated by Nicolae Ceausescu, an authoritarian leader who basically ran the country into the ground. Our congregation thought it would be a great idea to buy a tractor for the village to help them out, modernize their farming. As it turned out, this well-meaning gesture turned sour. The village was unable to reach agreement on who got to use the tractor when, and the politics of having a shared tractor became contentious. After a few years of being a sore point, the tractor was sold. We learned something. In the future, we ought to do more listening and less assuming what other people in another place, in another culture, might really need. Of course, the story of our relationship with the people of Carrasco St. George is also a su success story in the end. But there are lessons along the way, and we look forward to hearing about Earl's learning curve and providing help that actually helps. Namaste. I'd like to start out with a few confessions, since this is church. I'm an expert on help because, as Ginny and Craig can vouch, I'm totally helpless. I couldn't do this without all the people around me, Barb, John, and Dennis and Lee, 
Jenny especially, my goodness. And I have so much support from all of these sponsors here, some who have come from other churches. So uh, thank you all for coming and, and uh, hearing my confession. Now for the real confession, I want you to know something about who I am. In my formative years, we lived in Japan. One day, my father, a Navy surgeon, was given temporary orders directing him to go to Taiwan to operate on President Chiang Kai-shek. While there, our family was, was escorted by the Madam Secretary in a black Cadillac limo to a mountain village overlooking Taipei to be entertained by Aboriginal dances. The village was not rustic. It was primitive and dirty. And I was dressed to the nines and stuck out like a sore thumb. Immediately upon stepping into the village, I saw a girl my age. Barefoot. And dressed in rags. Our eyes met and immediately we both looked away out of shame. She for her poverty and I for my privilege. My heart ached to the point that I could never reveal it to my parents. So at 14, I realized I had been indulged and was undeserving. And that was, it was just a damn crapshoot that this girl wasn't the privileged one and I the impoverished one. Veritably Russian, I'm sorry, ovarian roulette. Sixty years have, have passed. Taiwan has developed beyond our wildest imaginations, and that village of Wulai is a bustling town with a grand performance hall in which they dance. The only way I can help that girl in rags is to help other girls, other children in rags as well. So I refuse to take any remuneration for my work, my time, travel, or expenses. For me, it's not a job. It's not charity. It's penance. And it wouldn't be penance if money were not an issue for me. So I'm very careful with with money and our sponsors' money. I want everyone to benefit, our students to be educated and successful, their families, and easing of their huge financial burden, the schools we use to be, re- be rewarded for good teaching, and our staff to have meaningful employment, our board to have a sense of purpose, but most of all, our sponsors to gain satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment. Mary Jane and I would, would have heart-wrenching or disagreements when it came to helping those on the street needing a handout. So I offer this sermon as just one man's interpretation of what is help, real help, gained from 25 years of, cons- of concerted helping. So I hope you, I hope when you come across others asking for help, my story resonates and in some way gives you pause and quiet reflection. Just how can I best help? 
So to begin with, in 1994, at the ripe old age of 47, I was invited to volunteer in a children's charity hospital in Kathmandu as a, as a physician's assistant. I'm dehydrated already. And my time at the hospital, as you can imagine, was as fulfilling as it was mind-blowing. I witnessed a wide range of real pathology, one pus oozing bone infection after another as as a result of inadequate or inappropriate treatment. Open fires in the homes for cooking and heating yielded a rash of hideous burns and disabilities for young children falling into fires. I saw dozens of club feet that were neglected for so long that they required radical surgeries and rehab. If malnutrition, measles, and diarrhea don't kill them by the age of five, something else would soon enough, like meningitis, sepsis, and TB. David Werner, author of Where There Is No Doctor, describes it this way. There's a fast-flowing river, of which there are many in Nepal, And the doctors are stationed on the banks. They are leaping into the water and swimming out to the children floating by, frantically flailing their arms as they are drowning. The doctors grab hold and haul them back onto the shore and resuscitate them. But once the child is revived, the doctors must then immediately jump back into the river to rescue yet another. So busy saving children being washed downstream, No one is able to go upstream to see who is pushing them off the bridge. What is help? What is real help? So three years later, when I returned to Nepal, this time with my partner, Mary Jane, to once again volunteer at the hospital, I was asking myself, what was pushing these children off the bridge? How could I offer Real help, other than just assisting in surgeries. As Craig noted, Mary Jane and I came to know a little street girl in Kathmandu named Duma during this visit in 1997. And we enrolled her in a private school so she could begin learning English. In following Uma's progress, I learned that health and hygiene were indeed taught in primary school. Every kid knows how knows to wash a wound and to boil water before drinking it. The danger lies in the unschooled parents who have no grasp of germ theory, especially in rural Nepal. Well, how could I help? I knew better than to try to educate adults. It's just too hard. I have studied a dozen languages and am fluent in only one. But then I remembered how my own daughter had trained me to buckle up before I would drive her to kindergarten. One day she called me on it. Dad, that's not fair. I have to wear a seatbelt. I then thought of how many kids must have been a factor in getting their parents to quit smoking. I love you, Mom. Please, please stop. I don't want you to die. How can you argue against that? So I could educate some children, and they'd undoubtedly educate their parents and and sibs about hygiene. Mom, we're out of soap. And heck, in 20 years, these babes would be parents themselves, educated and able to prevent their children from falling into the river. I thought of Aesop's mouse, our little Uma, who, after being spared by me, the king of beasts, was able to gnaw through my net 
in which I was entangled and free me from my conundrum. And so in 2001, I had my answer. I would help by going upstream and find bright young minds like Uma and give them a jump on life and bring health information and hygiene to the unschooled and secondarily to their parents and sibs. The fact that our 600 families of our 600 students persevered so much better than the rest of the country during the pandemic is evidence of this. And remember, we are educating the poorest, unhealthiest kids in Nepal. None of our kids died. Just one parent and a couple of uncles and aunts. As I said, Uma's progress was amazing, but there were more potholes ahead. We knew from the outset that Uma's father had abandoned the family at birth. We soon discovered that her birth was never registered, so not only did she not know her birthday, she wasn't even sure how old she was. She was a non-entity, which meant we would have to track down her father somehow to get her registered, which we were able to do many years later. So after being abandoned, the mother had come with Uma to Kathmandu and was successful in finding another man to support her. But once Uma's two step stepbrothers were born, that gadfly flew off to another woman across town, leaving mother to support three kids. And so the cigarette store, that woven little mat of cigarettes, was conceived out of desperation, just like her children. But then shortly after we placed Uma in the private school, sure enough, the stepfather returned and jerked her out of school. So with the mother's permission, we gained custody of Uma and transferred her to another private school where she could be boarded beyond the control of her stepfather. Through all this, Uma plugged on year after year after year to finally becoming a registered nurse. So from all of this, I learned that we we needed to thoroughly vet each candidate and uncover their full story before committing support. Real help is not just putting them in school. It's keeping them in school. Otherwise, all is for naught. But we were to learn that there were even bigger potholes. All of our family families were dirt poor and live on the razor's edge of a medical catastrophe. Well, thank God I'm a PA. I realized that by keeping a close eye on their academic progress, we would catch an injury or an illness well, early as, as, as well. Catch them even before they hit the water. A simple band-aid and iodine or an antibiotic can quell an infection before it becomes septic. So good oversight was critical. Sedicia, however, got by us. I'm sorry, I'm not giving you uh, the clues, Jenny. Could I have the, the slide of Sediksha? Okay. I, thank you. I caught her before she hit the rocks below, and we were able to actually cure her leukemia with a three-year regimen of chemo for uh, for, 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 for $7,000 in Nepal, instead of the more usual $100,000. And so with Sadie, we started a cancer fund in addition to our medical fund. 
Sadie went on to become a receptionist for us while receiving chemo and then a midwife. Our second inter- uh, on uh, next slide. Oh, thank you. Our second cancer intervention was less successful, and despite two surgeries, we lost Teju to bone cancer. Her little sister, Dispu, next slide, was also bright and just as spunky, and her sponsors gladly transferred support to her. So Teju's legacy moves on in Dispu. More cancers have followed, but so far, so good. We have a good number of pediatric heart surgeries and several spinal surgeries, all successful. Next slide. I met Nirmaya at the age of four or five and diagnosed her with severe scoliosis in a little bamboo clinic, which we had erected on the riverbank, which was occupied by spotters, as you recall from the story of all ages. I think any of you could have diagnosed this. Scoliosis is a crooked spine. I referred Nirmaya to the children's hospital where Mary Jane and I had volunteered. They used, they viewed, uh, they fused some vertebrae, some critical vertebrae initially, but we all had to wait until she stopped going to surgically correct her spine. This made her stoop over as she grew. Imagine being a hunchback in high school. But Nirmaya had an indomitable spirit and is always smiling and laughing. Next slide. The summer before entering, she finally had her operation and grew five inches by the end of the day. And so, to really help, one has to do what's needed to finish the job and to keep them in school. But even beyond the medical catastrophes, there lurked more potholes. Nepalis are just like everyone else, but their lives are far more tragic due to the lack of available resources. So we provide the tutoring and all kinds of counseling, academic and and career counseling for our students, marital counseling for our bickering parents, and emotional support for depression, anxiety, and even suicidal ideation, etc. We install children in school and fully support them, come what may, with the caveat, so long as you work hard. If they were your children, isn't that what you would do? Sui niño es mi niño. That's what makes a global village. Then there is the Goldilocks dilemma. Not too much help, but just enough. What good is an education if one learns to read, but still cannot gain better employment? How much education is needed to really impact their livelihoods? Kalyan, next slide. Our oldest student at the beginning was the first one to demonstrate that a high school education just wasn't enough. He had worked his way through high school at a, as a tourist, at a tourist agency. So we supported him until he achieved a business diploma with which he could become a tourist agent. After four years as a tourist agent, he went on to Dubai and became a corporate accountant. And then he returned to Nepal and set up his own tourist agency and a separate charity and became president of our our board in Nepal. Kalyan's example, next slide. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's 
Ikalian's example showed us we must fledge them all the way into careers to see them on uh, to see them soar on high. Soon, many of our students were not just going to the universities, but were taking on professional programs, nursing, engineering, medicine, and more and more, and, and so that more than just than some of our sponsors could afford. So we established a scholarship fund to help both students and sponsors address the higher costs. Moreover, many of our students win scholarships, while others are able to negotiate a reduced fee because of their high marks. Oh, the rewards of empowerment. But there's one thing about help we all need to recognize. Too much help can be a disincentive, disempowering the student and enabling the family. This this almost always becomes apparent when the grades begin to slip. So we keep a close eye on school performance. However, the principals of these of these private schools also know that good marks are a precondition to receiving payments from us. Hence, some start forging high marks for underperforming students. So we can't just trust. We must verify. Verify that their performance to keep from enabling the school principals as well. Twice a year, our staff visits over 100 schools all over Nepal to check up on our students. It takes over a month, with two jeeps leaving in opposite directions from Kathmandu. Once at the schools, we settle with accounts and closely observe our students and as they read and write letters to their sponsors. We then show DVD movies. I'm sorry. You're keeping right up with me. Thank you, Jenny. Next slide. We show DVD movies followed by a film discussion. Throughout most of the world, schools only teach by rote, so our discussions help them develop their analytical skills, social consciousness, and overcome their shyness, building self-confidence. And all the while, we are assessing their speaking and writing ability. This empowerment enables our students to stand head and shoulders above their classmates. But to what end are we helping? Are we helping just a student, or can we help society as a whole? So as our students continue to excel, I came to realize that we were indeed, that there were indeed thousands of other kids like Uma and Kalyan uh, out there in the nether, in the, in the ether. If answer could just harness enough of them, we like Archimedes might have a lever long enough to tilt Nepal into enacting reforms. But how? When, and it was then that someone reminded me of a movie. So we, we, uh, we are using films like Pay It Forward with our film discussions to motivate them to pay it forward. Go ahead, Jenny, if you would. We have a clip here. Unless. This is the longest 30 second clip you've ever seen. Unless. 
You take the things that you don't like about this world and you flip them upside down and you can start that today. That's me and that's three people and I'm going to help them. Then they do it for three other people Then they do it for three more. But it has to be something really big, something they can't do by themselves. The kids love this movie and could identify with Trevor. The poverty and with the poverty around them, the bullying at school, the desire to change society for the better. And that's how I began to obsess over the idea of PIF, paying it forward. Then when they reach the university levels, most are able to attend our monthly meetings to listen to presentations by noted speakers. Speakers like members of parliament major newspaper editors, NGO executives, and university presidents. The question and answer sessions astound and confound our speakers. Who are these young, who are these young people? How dare they question? Real, real help not only instills hope, but also initiative. And our student, uh, I'm sorry, could, did, could, did you do the, uh, Triple A slide. Do you have that? Nope. <laughs> okay. Real help not only instills hope, but also initiative. And our students' success becomes sources of joy, happiness, and fulfillment for our sponsors. As I began to explore happiness, I came to feel that if our graduates could sponsor younger answer students, just like they were sponsored, they too could re reap real joy, fulfillment, and pride in their students, just as they were sponsored by, just as their sponsors. Well, finally, I opted to bring you some stories to illustrate how comprehensive our program is and needs to be. To date, we have helped 1,600 students not only gain literacy, but English fluency and excel beyond our wildest imagination. Nationally, each year, only 40% of the students who take the national grade 10 exam uh, pass it. Yet every answer student has passed it, all 1,600, and most are, and most with honors and have gone on to universities to forge careers as doctors, nurses, lawyers, engineers, social workers, pharmacists, bankers, accountants, and business people. Even our low-caste students are able to overcome caste discrimination through their outstanding performance. We have 15 law students, law students and lawyers, all women who are rabid about attacking gender discrimination. Not even the best schools in Nepal can match our success because their students are high caste and many just don't have the will to work hard. Our kids, our kids know they have but this one chance. In America, private schools cost about $500 a week. But in Nepal, they are $500 a year. Because our board fundraises to cover the administrative costs, this sponsor needs only to cover the school costs. Now you know why we are the most affordable, the most effective, 
and the most caring NGO in the global village. That should be our sales pitch. But what I really want is for as many people as possible to experience this joy, this happiness, and the fulfillment of really helping others in real need and to see them really succeed. That is why Answer is called the Happiness NGO. But really, that's a whole nother sermon. Thank you all. Namaste.